0: Dr. David Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist and New York Times bestselling author of four books, including the world-famous number one bestseller, Grain Brain. A lot has happened since he first wrote this book in 2013 with regards to brain research. So this month, he's republishing the book with 40% new information. He's a longtime member of the Mind, Body, Green family, part of the MBG Collective and actually spoke at our Revitalize event back in 2016 about the connection between our gut health and our brain health. He's a recipient of numerous awards for his innovative work in brain research, including the 2010 Humanitarian of the Year Award and the 2002 Linus Pauling Award. One of our favorite people, Dr. David Perlmutter, welcome back to the podcast. I'm delighted to be back. This is the one of my favorite seats in the world. Oh, I love it. You heard it here first. (laughs) Favorite seats in the world, Dr. David Perlmutter. Uh, So this is airing January 1st. So January 1st, 2019. Everyone listening, they want to make this year their happiest, healthiest year yet. What can they do? The highest level. Let's start right there. Activate the happy part of your brain.
1: Activate the prefrontal cortex and recognize that connecting to that part of your brain is very much inhibited by our lifestyle choices. When we increase inflammation, we break down our ability to access that part of our brain. We act more from a primitive area of the brain, the amygdala, uh, which is uh, really not allowing us to be happy, allowing us to be empathetic and compassionate and plan for the future. Rather, we act impulsively and serve our moment-to-moment desires as, a part, uh, as contrasted to our long-term goals for happiness. So reducing inflammation means lowering our consumption of sugar, increasing our consumption of healthful fats, uh, getting more aerobic exercise, spending time in meditation, distancing ourselves from invasive uh, digital media, and regaining
0: connection at multiple levels. You didn't say gluten. No, I wouldn't put that on the top of the list, for Oh, sure. wow, so that's my next question. Sugar, gluten, it sounds like, I was gonna say sugar, gluten, what's worse? It sounds like, in your opinion, sugar's worse. Well, by
1: far. I mean, that gets us to the grain conversation, and the biggest issue with grain is the effect it has on our blood sugar quite apart from whether it does or does not contain gluten? Gluten is an issue that's for sure. So wheat, barley, and rye should obviously be off the table, quite literally. And you know, interestingly, <clears throat> years ago when we published Grain Brain, that was five and a half, six years ago now, uh, we we made that statement and uh, recognized that well beyond the 1.4 percent of americans who have celiac disease many people should really do their best if not all people and i believe it should be all people avoid gluten because we were we had talked about something called non celiac gluten sensitivity meaning that you don't have celiac disease you have none of the uh, genetic markers for it none of the antibodies for it and yet uh, you seem to react negatively to gluten and we proposed this back in 2013 And, boy, that raised a lot of eyebrows and was very disruptive, gratefully. Uh, Now uh, we've, as you know, uh, revised Grain Brain and are able to leverage, like the 2017 study published in the American Medical Association Journal by researchers at Harvard that absolutely validates the notion of non-celiac gluten sensitivity which can cause extra-intestinal issues, meaning well beyond the gut, the joints, the skin, and dare I say, yes, the brain. So when the Journal of the American Medical Association really dials in on this, uh, a couple of years after you've written a book about it, that was a little bit um, a little disruptive. Bit. Well, good, and the, more be- the more the more, <laughs> the better. A lot of it disruptive. Well, you know, Grain Brain, and now The Revision, um, very much challenged and challenged the status quo. Thank goodness. I mean, the status quo is not great. As you know, just recently it was announced that for the first time, uh, American life expectancy in both men and women is declining. So something's wrong. We haven't changed genetically, but in terms of our metabolism, that has changed dramatically by exogenous factors over which we have control, our lifestyle choices. So this is important information. It is existential information.
0: So what is some of the latest and greatest science since GrainBrain? You you mentioned that one report from the AMA. What else is is new and out there that uh, you feel strongly about? Well, one of the things that
1: uh, (coughs) GrainBrain was all over, that uh, some science that we didn't have access to, although we certainly recognized the relationship between blood sugar and even diabetes and brain degeneration. That was published back in 2012 in September uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine. What we now know is that this relationship is far more aggressive than we had figured out in the past. That you need to do everything you, you can to not become even close to being a diabetic. So diabetes, uh, type 2 diabetes, is really powerfully uh, influential in terms of your brain's destiny. And the newer information uh, information indicates to us that there are other issues aside from even diet and exercise that relate to diabetes. For example, also published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, a women's study that uh, evaluated 150,000 women and determined that their risk for diabetes, developing this disease that relates to Alzheimer's risk, is increased 71% if they're taking a statin drug for their cholesterol. Now, who knows this stuff? Nobody. And yet, it was published by the Journal of the American Medical Association that should have been on the evening news and the front page of the New York Times. I mean, who talks about that when you're writing the prescription for a patient? Oh, hey, your cholesterol's a bit elevated. Take this statin drug. I was recently interviewed, as in this morning, by a, a woman who says, "Oh, yeah, I take 80 milligrams of Lipitor each day." And I said, "Oh, do you know that there's any risk for that?" "No, not really." "Are you taking coenzyme Q10 along with that?" "What's that?" "So the famous CoQ10." "Yeah." "So, but I think we've got to understand to that you know we in the healthcare world." Uh, including what you do, uh, not just physicians, but including the outreach that you provide to the population at large, really needs to focus on primum non nacer, above all, do no harm. Great to make recommendations, but we have to always consider the potential risks involved and not expose anybody to risk. That said, people should understand that there is a risk involved of developing diabetes if you're taking the statin drug. 71% increased risk in women, 46% increased risk in men. Why is that an issue for us in the field of neurology? Because becoming a type two diabetic may as much as quadruple your risk for Alzheimer's disease, and that is a disease for which there is no treatment. As a matter of fact, also published in the Journal of the American Medical Association online last month, was a a very powerful study that looked at the effectiveness of Alzheimer's drugs that are marketed to the tune of about a billion dollars here in America annually. And it wanted to determine how effective these drugs were in slowing the decline in an Alzheimer's patient. Well, the study didn't demonstrate that they were effective or not effective in slowing the decline. It actually demonstrated... That the drugs that are marketed for Alzheimer's patients speed the decline cognitively in people taking them. Can you say that again? That taking the Alzheimer's drug worsens your cognitive function over time. It's like giving people a drug for their blood sugar that raises their blood sugar. Or treating hypertension with a pill that raises your blood pressure. And again, I, um, I read these studies and... I can't understand why that's not on CNN. It's not on the evening news or in the front page of the New York Times. This is huge. We're talking about a close to a billion dollar industry. Still debating coconut oil. uh, Giving that's right, right. The the horrible saturated fat in coconut oil, but debating uh, this issue. Now we know the drugs are worsening people. And you talk about violating the notion of above all, do no harm. Think about that.
0: Yeah, it's powerful, and there is a lot of information out there and a lot of confusing information and a lot of conflicting opinions, and we always say here at My Muddy Green, we're the United Nations of Wellness. We have lots of opinions, but they're all credible opinions. You need to choose uh, among am, those credible opinions.
1: In this world of uh, antagonism uh, and uh, you know uh, dogmatism, I think that Listening to others' opinions is again activating that part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, where you uh, can have that ability to put yourself in another person's uh, shoes and see, try to see the world through his or her uh, eyes. I mean, it's you know they say never judge another person uh, until you walk a mile in his shoes. Sure. You know why they say that? Because that way, when you do judge that person, you're already a mile away. And you have his shoes. So truth of the matter is, no, it's the, the idea is we should be able to listen to the perspectives of others. And just the aggressive uh, animosity seems to propel media today in a way that, you know, I, I, at my age, I'm certainly uh, not accustomed to, and uh, I, I was talking to you earlier about the fact that I was on a program this morning, a national news program. and they led into the program the first graphic they were challenging me i didn't realize i thought it was going to be a smiley friendly uh, discussion of my new book and they put up a graphic uh that uh from the first graphic i got to read it to you from the sugar the sugar association there is more to sugar and here's the quote Sugar is best enjoyed in moderation, and decades of research support this fact. From Courtney Gain, Sugar Association president and CEO. I would agree with the first part. (laughs) With what? Moderation. Sugar is
0: best enjoyed in moderation. Right, but but, but they're showing
1: us a stack of, let's say, six, seven, eight, nine um, Mm. chocolate chip cookies. That's the image that was shown on national television this morning to challenge me. Now, uh, so this is somebody whose job it is
0: uh, to promote sugar, and uh, in terms of a PR campaign, that's what was. Well, I, I would also argue that it, well, it's so misleading, but decades of research support this fact that yeah, if you have too much sugar, it's it's not. <laughs> it's well, I think it gets down you. to you know how do we yeah. define
1: moderation? Right. And I've always loved when people say you know Dr. Perlmutter. Uh, I think my, any, I, I live by everything in moderation. And so I always say to them, you know, not too much sniffing glute, but just enough, you know, so it's, it's sure. just in moderation. So
0: anyway, that's how they and, led and into the, the interview. And there are various opinions. So like, I, I, I would say a lot of people listening will say, OK, get it. Gluten, not good. I generally avoid it me personally, I can say that. I generally avoid it. If I'm gonna have gluten, like if I'm gonna have a cookie, I'm gonna get the cookie at Levain Bakery, which is famous in Manhattan. It's like amazing. It's, it's, I'm gonna do it and that's it. If I'm gonna have pizza, it's gonna be from Roberta's and that's it and I'm gonna enjoy it. I'm gonna have the best and I don't enjoy it. but it, it it's a I have every once in a while and I think a lot of people will fall into that. Get it, gluten not good, the connection. Um, and there's some people who say like, all right, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia there are brain health issues in my family i'm done like i right. get it i don't want it and i think it's a very scary thing for people and i think most people get that i don't think there are many people who are going to go into a whole debate around uh you know gluten's good for me and so forth so where i'm trying to bridge is with regards to to your message and and grain brain it's it's the brain and brain health and i think so we could just fast forward so many people get what's going on with, with, with grains and gluten and so forth. What are the things that people, we talk in, in, in the effort to uh, bring people together, like what are, the, what, are the, what are the good things we can do in terms of diet, foods to enjoy, um, something that came up and revitalized this past year, the idea of purpose, brain health. So let's like segue, like what are, what are the things like in the spirit of optimizing our brain health? What are some of the things we should all be doing? I, I
1: promised you I'll get there in just one minute, but there's a hanging <laughs> chat here and I'm from Florida. So <laughs> here's the hanging chat. The hanging chat is <laughs> gluten is important, but nowhere near as we talked about initially, the importance of lowering your blood sugar and improving your insulin resistance. That said, you know, these images of chocolate chip cookies, they could be gluten free.
0: Yeah. It's, it's still a powerful issue based on, what it's doing to your blood sugar. So then- It doesn't what, matter one of my favorite lines from Revitalize from you. It doesn't matter if your bees are meditating in an ashram in India, it's still sugar. That's right, they don't <laughs> care. And nor do your cells
1: know that it happens to be uh, Shavuos uh, or Kwanzaa, whatever, or your birthday or your fifth anniversary of-, of Sure. M- moving your office, who knows? They, Your cells don't know that it happens to be uh, a special occasion and we're gonna let this one go. Cause every day should be a holiday, truthfully. Uh, But that said, so what are the positive things? And I I think that you want to do everything you can to improve insulin sensitivity. That is the goal. Now, that sounds a little bit um, nebulous to, I think, the common listener. So the tools to make that happen include gaining regular exercise of the aerobic type, dramatically reducing your simple sugars and processed carbohydrates, and also welcoming fat back to the table, eating good fat. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. So the real goal here is to reestablish insulin sensitivity, getting away from insulin resistance. And it's even beyond the, the, the role that insulin pre- plays in terms of giving brains, uh, brain cells uh, glucose to utilize in terms of their metabolism. Insulin in the brain plays other important roles in terms of keeping brain cells even beyond neurons, uh, happy and healthy. So that's really very, very important. Now, if you want to add to that other benefits of aerobic exercise, like changing your gene expression to express uh, the genes that code for a chemical that will allow you to grow new brain cells, that is uh, an added bonus. And so you're getting a a twofer here. Increasing BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, by aerobic exercise, by consuming uh, turmeric, uh, coffee, uh, ashwagandha, uh, even as uh, CBD increases brain-derived neurotrophic factor, but nothing does it to the extent of aerobic exercise. A ketogenic diet is so important for your brain, it's so good for your brain, and actually allows things to heal that might otherwise have been dysfunctional uh, f- after they were damaged by higher levels of blood sugar and inflammation. So. What can you do to increase uh, the ketones in your blood? Well, you eat less carbs, for one, eat more healthful fat, add MCT oil to your regimen, and even consider fasting from
0: time to time. I was going to say, How do you define ketogenic diet? Well, that's, Cause, easy, cause, that's the easy part. Yeah. So, but, but still, some people have an opinion on that, and there are some, there's some misinformation there. Oh, no, no doubt. There's misinformation about misinformation. But,
1: <laughs> but that said, uh, the ketogenic diet, that's the easy part. Uh, uh, a, t- a definition. A ketogenic diet is any diet that increases ketones in your blood. That's simple. Now, the question is, how do you do that? Is it fasting? Is it fasting mimicking? Is it a full-on ketogenic diet following a dietary plan? Is it adding exogenous ketones
0: to your regimen? Yeah. Those are all... And how road- do you define fasting? Is it 12 hours? Is it 14 hours? Is it 40 days? Is it, is it, is days? it is the fasting mimicking? Exactly.
1: Right. So these are all ro- roads that lead to Rome, Rome being having higher levels of ketones in your blood. That's the goal. Now, if you choose just to do this au naturel and just uh, put off uh, your first meal of the day until noon or two o'clock, something like that, you'll elevate your ketones in your blood. And that's, uh, you know, you've decided not to eat after supper the night before until you have this meal at two o'clock in the afternoon. And that meal is called break fast,
0: who knew? So how do you define, what's in your opinion, the minimum amount of time between dinner and next meal is it 12 hours? Is it 14 hours? Is it 16 hours? What's the minimum and what's the ideal?
1: Well, in order to really start cranking out the ketones, it's minimum of 12 hours. So uh, that's something probably that's everybody easy. can do, and that's when your body just first starts to realize. There's no more glucose around. It's going to start making ketones. It doesn't really do so in a very robust way. And it is highly individualized. Uh, So some people who are lean and are oftentimes getting into ketosis, I think it happens a lot more quickly, a lot more readily. For those who are certainly carbohydrate-dependent and are pounding their bodies with sugar and carbs all the time, They have a lot more problem uh, getting into ketosis and, in fact, feel worse when they haven't had breakfast, which is high carbohydrate, first thing in the morning with a big glass of OJ, you know, uh, nine teaspoons of sugar in a glass of 12-ounce glass of orange juice. Who knew? Along with the croissant or the bagel. You know, we name these things, and suddenly there's no carbs in them. Well, it's not bad for me. This is a croissant, for goodness sake, with some jam. So how could that be bad for me? You, know, you mentioned pizza a little while ago, and you know, it's highly refined uh, flour, but when you add the tomato sauce and all the other, suddenly it's not highly refined flour anymore. It's pizza. It, just, it, it morphed into something that, oh, pizza is something I had in my childhood, therefore it must be good. Christmas cookies we have every Christmas, therefore they're fine. So we contextualize our carbohydrates. I've never said that before.
0: We contextualize, contextualize our, our, carbohydrates our carbohydrates to validate them. So go, going back to the good stuff. So, okay, fasting, minimum of 12 hours. What, what, good stuff. So good fats. If you were to rank your good fats. I will, but I'm still
1: contextualizing carbohydrates okay. to validate that. I, I got to remember that one. So good fats as, a, as contrasted to fats that are threatening. So let's first preempt that by the notion that we've all been told fat is bad. We grew up at a time when fat was bad. That everything needed to be low fat or no fat, or you'd be in deep trouble. Which is unlike an experiment, uh, a research study, that demonstrates actually that fat is good for the human body. And that is it's kind of a long-standing study. It's been going on, I think, for about two and a half million years. And that is a study that looks at what the human diet has been like, uh, based upon what was available for us to consume over that period of time. And it worked keeping us going for two and a half million years. And some interesting things happened over the past two and a half million years. Our brain size tripled in size uh, until about 12,000, 14,000 years ago when suddenly the brain didn't increase in size anymore and actually since that time our brains have decreased in size by about 10%. Now brain size is not the end all, but along with that we've seen thinning of bone when we compare ourselves to our fossilized ancestors, much poorer dentition as well. What happened 10 to 12,000 years ago? We developed agriculture, which represented a diametric shift in human uh, nutrition that suddenly uh, we've gone from a very low carbohydrate diet with the exception of dietary fiber, a diet that had plenty of protein and certainly lots and lots of fat, precious fat that we desperately need, to a diet where the bulk of calories comes from carbs. And that has direct impact on our metabolism and physiology and secondary effect in terms of changing our gene expression and tertiary effect based upon its effect on the microbiome on our gut bacteria that are playing such an important role in maintaining our health and disease resistance moving forward. So, eating good fats, welcoming fat back to the table is something you know MBG has been all about. You've had so much written on, on your site about the healthful aspects of olive oil, uh, using clarified butter if you want to get back to Ayurvedic tradition. There's upsides to that. Nuts, seeds, grass-fed beef if you choose to eat beef. The only beef you should eat, I would not be eating commercially raised beef. I wouldn't go near it. Uh, when we see books written about how eating meat like that is threatening to your health, the China study, for example, Dr. Campbell, I'm total agreement with, with those conclusions. Because that's based upon the type of threatening product that you know we produce these days and people consume. So those are the good types of, of oil, especially, and fat. The, uh,
0: the no oil. avocados? I'm getting there. Okay. It's still working. Like We're a going down thing. the list.
1: Yeah, but I am st- I want to start with fish. We'll get oh. to avocados uh, and eggs in just a moment. <laughs> uh, but fish, fish oil is really very, very important. We need exogenous Uh, sources of DHA for brain health, for immune function, for reduction of inflammation. And by far and away, fish and other marine products are the best natural sources for that, not farm-raised. Beyond that, uh, did I mention avocado? Why, there's a good choice. (laughs) Avocado is terrific. They travel well, as a matter of fact, for those of us who are on the road quite a bit. You know, I pack my suitcase with uh, avocados staged in various levels of hardness so that they ripen over the course of my trip. And eggs, what a wonderful food. Eggs are just about the most perfect food in nature. Eggs contain a really interesting chemical that is really important for brain health. Uh, It's called cholesterol. And so whenever we can seek out foods that have lots of good cholesterol in them, that's a good
0: food to eat. And so with regards to, you mentioned fiber. How do you balance the need for fiber when we're talking about reducing carbs and cutting out well, grains? Well,
1: by definition, fiber is a source of carbohydrate that you do not metabolize. So it does not enter in the equation. It is very supportive of the notion of net carbs, where you subtract out the fiber and you subtract out whatever sugar alcohols might be in a particular well, sugar product. sugar alcohols is probably going to be consumer pack-
0: CPG product. Without yeah. a doubt.
1: But <sighs> I'm saying, but subtracting out the what qualifies as dietary fiber uh, from your total calculation of your carbohydrate consumption and recognize how darn important uh, fiber is you know there's a real push for people to get on a low carb diet like they're trying to get into ketosis as an example and oftentimes they
0: but you need to poop you bet
1: and that's (laughs) i think the biggest reason that people bail on the ketogenic diet it's because they don't poop. Well, it and, turns
0: into a bacon diet and uh, butter, that's right. and, then and that's how people read it. And it's
1: not Atkins Redux here. Yep. You've got to eat lots of good plant fiber or as a supplement fiber.
0: So what are your favorites? For fiber? Yeah.
1: Well, um, from a supplement perspective, I like Acacia. And baobab, I think those are excellent complex fibers that break down slowly and are extremely well tolerated. But uh, from a food perspective, I like uh, dandelion greens, uh, collards, onions, leeks, garlic, a chicory root. These are really power-packed uh, sources of great prebiotic fiber.
0: So, I'm not hearing any of the dark leafy greens. Kale for sure. Okay. One, I, I eat kale every
1: single day. Spinach, broccoli. All I'm just the going time. through the whole thing. All question. the time. Okay. Now, I, they weren't on the top of the list in terms of prebiotic fiber, but in terms right. of fiber rich foods, kale is, is great. Kale has suddenly become uh, the food du jour. You can find well, it everywhere. It's,
0: y- y- the only person who doesn't like kale is Dave Asprey.
1: Uh, that's all right. He's
0: entitled. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's absolutely, everyone's entitled when they come into the podcast to share their opinion. So it's an interesting opinion. Um, so with regards to something else, like in the conversation right now, <clears throat> lectins. Oh, that's just it. We're just throwing well, out. we just, just to throw out lectins. You know, you and could say, I'll, I'll, I'll pass. <laughs> play or I'll, pass. No, I, I never I'll pass. I'll play. <laughs> um,
1: I, I, think it's, it's an, important conversation. I think it has to be contextualized in terms of how do we rank the threats to human health uh, and balance that with then the recommendations that we make in terms of availability and people being able to pull it off. So I had a wonderful conversation with Stephen Gundry uh, on our podcast. And I think he makes some really important points. We've got to do everything we can to maintain gut lining integrity and not threaten it uh, with respect to uh, exposure to lectins. But I think it's a very interesting story. Uh, To me, the big strokes are, uh, the broad strokes, are really uh, centered these days in our population around sugar consumption and then dietary choices that threaten the gut bacteria.
0: I just don't take, I'm just not into beans because they give me gas. So so I I buy the lectin argument for me for uh, uh, hygiene. Uh, You know, we we buy, (laughs) uh, there's no question. We buy these
1: um, into these arguments, not just because we believe the science, but the next question is, well, how is that going to work with my lifestyle? And then do I accept it or reject it? So, uh, but I, I, I'm very taken uh, having a conversation
0: with Yeah, you guys are
1: actually quite aligned. Yeah, in in fact, I'll be talking with him in, in about a week and
0: I, so honor the work that he's doing. Well, I think what I love about him and you and a lot of people in the health space, I think it's important to have provocative conversations and point of, points of view to push the conversation forward. I think w- when we get to a place, I don't know if we'll ever get there, where every uh, doctor in the field is just agreeing on everything, I, I think maybe that's almost dangerous. Like I would argue that to have different opinions that are provocative is, is powerful. It's like, imagine if we got to the House of Congress where everyone disagreed on everything. Like, it's probably going to be a bad... It'd be better than where we are today, but... We're, we're get, close. There, there's checks and balances. I think it's important. Well, yeah,
1: without a doubt. But I think that what we're not <clears throat> seeing is the, a venue whereby people can share their opinions and be respected for them. Well, that's my buddy
0: Green. It, exactly. That's <laughs> like, we are, as I said, like, we are doing... So I love yeah, being yeah. in this seat, I
1: told you from the beginning. Uh, and That's what's really missing. I interviewed... Uh, an individual a uh, who had written a book about a um, that gluten was a good thing. Um, John Deweyard. He's a, a chiropractor. Sure. And uh, I actually have known John uh, for probably 25 years. I did my Ayurvedic training with him. Uh, he was our, my instructor years and years ago at the Chopra Center. And um, we disagreed on gluten in such a respectful way. And... We got such commentary on that post uh, on the, on the uh, interview that that the commentary had nothing to do with gluten, but it, it had to do with the respect that we showed towards each other and listening to each other's opinions. And, you know, I, I don't think the world is flat, but if you're telling me that it is, I want to listen. I want to hear where that came from, not it's flat, end of story, soundbite, we're done.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so something you mentioned previously, DH3. So, you know, I don't eat... As much fish as I probably should. So I take an omega, DH3, I take my omega every day to make sure I get that. It's important. So I'm, I'm bridging to minerals, supplements. I know it's hard to make generalizations, but what are, in your opinion, probably the necessary minerals, herbs? You also mentioned ashwagandha. Like, what, what, are, what are sort of some, some of the things that probably safe to say most people wouldn't be hurt if they were? taking it, or, or they're probably short on something.
1: Well, I think statistically, Americans are dramatically short on, not a technical term, but short on vitamin D, mm-hmm. uh, magnesium, uh, the B vitamin group, uh, to start off with, and as you mentioned, DHA. Uh, what should everybody be taking? And I didn't say everyone should be taking this, because I think we can simply have a, a blood testing to figure out who needs what. Uh, but I think everyone should be taking a, a supplemental prebiotic fiber unless you're really cognizant of that and eating lots of good prebiotic fiber on a daily basis in uh, some way to emulate the diet of our ancestors. I mean, that's a bit of a paleo commentary, but I think there's good reason for that if we want to relate back to the microbiome. Now, with respect to vitamin D, you get a vitamin D blood test, and your doctor says, it shouldn't say that you're in the normal range because that is just inadequate. And if you know, the normal range is, let's say, 30 to 100 and you're at 31. You're not right. uh, You're not good enough, in my book anyway. You want to be in the optimal range, keeping your vitamin D level in the 80s or 90s. Uh, you can have specific vitamin B levels done for the various vitamin Bs, but a far more important test, I think, is one called homocysteine. Homocysteine is a marker, to some degree, of B vitamin adequacy. Uh, and I think that... Uh, Probably everybody should consider taking some form of a DHA supplement, either algae-derived or fish-derived. I'm less keen on krill-derived in light of what that's doing environmentally. I think those are the keys. By and large, most Americans are low in magnesium. So that said, I don't know if anyone's going to be hurt by adding in extra magnesium, but I think it's something you may, you know, want to put on that top tier of, you know, of what we consider to be almost essential.
0: Yeah, you mentioned homocysteine. I I know you were with our dear friend Frank Lipman earlier. So I see Frank, my homocysteine was crazy. We'll talk about it and it's back to normal through supplementation. Every other marker, fine. But like almost like unbelievable, like Let's talk about it. I
1: mean, I think it's, if you have a minute. (laughs) Yeah. So homocysteine is a marker of a process in your metabolism called methylation. And with poor methylation, homocysteine levels will rise, and at the same time, glutathione levels will decline. And that's a a, a double hit. Number one, you don't want your homocysteine levels to climb. Why? Because that's a powerful risk factor towards oxidation of your blood vessels. Elevated homocysteine is strongly correlated to Alzheimer's risk. That was published in the New England Journal of Medicine way back in 2001. That's old news, but nonetheless, because it's vitamin-related, doesn't seem to get much interest. So the study in the New England Journal d- demonstrated that high levels of homocysteine are, will then lead to the production of something called homocysteic acid, which damages mitochondrial function. Mm-hmm. So the energetics of your brain cells are compromised, as well as your uh, vascular vasculature being damaged. And at the same time, when you don't methylate appropriately, you decrease the production of the body's master antioxidant, called glutathione which also plays a role in detoxification, allowing you to offload the chemicals and toxins of modern society. So not to be overly involved in personalized medicine, but this is really a good argument in getting your uh, 23andMe or other Mm -hmm. laboratory to look at your genome to determine if you have nuances of this pathway that predispose you to poor methylation. So your listeners might want to look at a YouTube video on what's called MTHFR. Sure. Methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. Which is a a significant amount of the population. Yeah, it's about 28% of of Americans have some degree of MTHFR abnormality. I happen to be whacked in that gene department, uh, meaning that I have uh, all the bad gene representations making me Uh, at great risk for poor methylation. So what do I do? I do take B vitamins, but they're methylated. Mm -hmm. So I've corrected that genetic predisposition, and I'm in better shape now. So my homocysteine is really low.
0: So with regards to testing, I think we're at this interesting point. Totally agree everything's about personalization. So I'm a guy, I'll go to Frank and I do my I go to Labcorp Corp or whatever and I do my testing quarterly and we go through the results and I know what markers that I have and I just dial, and and we see how supplementation is progressing and what's working and so forth. I'm very educated. I work with one of the best doctors who we all love, Frank. And I would and, agree with you. Yeah, so but for some people it also something I've talked about with Frank and in general it's like where we're going with personalization where, where do we run the risk of overtesting and also TMI, too much information, where something we've talked about gratitude, spirituality, other things at play which we don't have an understanding where knowing too much is possibly not a good thing. And how do you balance that when being rooted in science and testing and personalization? I think it's a good problem. I think that's where we're sort of entering. For me, uh, I, I have
1: modulated my. Life mission at this stage to look at the broad strokes that have broad reaching applicability to large populations. So I think personalized medicine is exciting because it's giving, it's really informing us, uh, not just for that individual, but it's informing us for the population at large. The more people are involved in, in um, personalized medicine, the more data we accumulate that lets us sort of take a step back and look at the bigger picture. So I've, I you know, know that it's important for me to remain very much at school in the leading edge of what personalized medicine is looking at and developing and what the future holds for that. I, in my mission, look at the, uh, the broader strokes that can affect much broader populations truly globally. Uh, very few people can avail themselves of what you avail yourself of, i.e., this uh, aggressive, specific testing for various biomarkers, and then a personal interaction with a physician to give you the attraction points and what you should be doing. That's not something that's global. Yeah, available. I do it quarterly. <laughs> well, there you yeah. go. <laughs> but, so not everybody can yeah. do that. In fact, almost nobody. Though we think it's common here in America, globally that's extremely rare. And, uh, you know, my, my outreach is uh, looking at uh, the global impact of the messaging. So um, I spoke last year at the World Bank that was uh, simulcasted to 50 uh, locations around the world about the simple steps that we can take that can help reduce the global burden of this situation, Alzheimer's disease, for example. And that is, cutting. as we mentioned, we've got to have lower levels of sugar in the diet and increase, uh, again, dietary fiber and dietary fat. Those are just three bullet points. I mean, we have many bullet points, from homocysteine to exercise, you name it. But if I can get that simple message to the biggest audience possible, I think that's important. And, And let's be very, very clear that these same recommendations have leverage across the platform of all chronic degenerative conditions, including diabetes, coronary artery disease, and to a significant degree, even cancer, just based upon a couple of parameters, dietary sugar, dietary fat, and lack of dietary fiber.
0: So talk about, segueing away from the science, gratitude, purpose, what role do gratitude and purpose play in brain health, in inflammation, in all these things. You know, I always say there's the art and science to everything. I look at here's all the science. Gratitude and purpose is a little bit of art, but there's also science starting to support our mindset, our belief system.
1: I think your listeners should know that we just transitioned. Uh, that I, I, <laughs> I feel it, that, that we've just <laughs> entered a, 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 a different level. Uh, and it uh, feels good. So... <clears throat> What's happening, you know, beyond the, the fact that inflammation damages your brain cells and damages the lining of your blood vessels, increasing your risk for vascular events, why inflammation is, is so detrimental is because it actually changes the wiring of your brain. The higher levels of inflammation that are uh, chemicals of inflammation floating around in your bloodstream right now compromise the connection between your brain's amygdala, a primitive brain area, and a more sophisticated area, the prefrontal cortex, which is really a unique characteristic of your being human. That and the opposable thumb you know, really differentiate us uh, from other primates and certainly other, other animals as well. And it's that prefrontal cortex that allows us to experience gratitude, empathy, compassion, understanding the implications of our activities in terms of future consequence as opposed to when we're locked into the amygdala where we're really based in terms of immediate gratification and impulsive behavior. As an example, somebody says something to you that uh, you don't like and either you respond immediately or you send out a negative tweet. I mean, that's what you could do. As opposed to taking a deep breath and thinking about it and maybe getting back to that person tomorrow. Uh, Planning for the future is a prefrontal cortex uh, function planning for the future in terms of the climate, our actions today, what is how is that going to affect the, the globe tomorrow and our children? So I think it's quite clear that we are developing a society that functions from a more primitive brain center, that we're all about immediate gratification. I want that product to be airdropped into my backyard this afternoon i'm not even going to wait for prime and get it tomorrow i want my i want my mtv remember this the dire Straits song Uh, yeah Um, but we want things now we want to satisfy our sweet tooth i want to eat sugar now the problem with all this is the more we do it through what is called neuroplasticity the more these pathways connecting us to our primitive brain centers become indelible and Our mission moving forward is to distance ourselves from that level of brain control and seeing the world through those eyes and reestablish connection to our more human parts of the brain that let me care about you and you care about me. The Dalai Lama said that to be happy, practice compassion. To make others happy,
0: practice compassion. So it's good for me and it's good for you. So if you were to prescribe a non-diet-related exercise for the prefrontal cortex, would that be compassion or something? Many things. Uh, Acting compassionately, doing things uh,
1: that demonstrate uh, care for another person, uh, putting a dollar in the tip jar when you get a cup of coffee when the barista is not looking, just doing it. (laughs) Black coffee, whatever it may be, but the point is not looking for that reward from that person. Sure. You know, uh, oh, just yeah. acting. I think we in all way. know. We all know about that. Okay, yes. well, we all know about it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I think you know. It certainly has been said that our thoughts determine our actions. I think we'd all agree with that. But what I'm saying is, our actions ultimately determine our thoughts and how we think and how we perceive the world around us. The Hebbian theory of neuroplasticity from the late 1940s indicated that neurons that fire together wire together, meaning the more you do something, the more those pathways are strengthened in the brain. And as we're talking about reconnecting to the prefrontal cortex, we want to strengthen that connection. There is actually a substrate for that. It's called the anterior cingulate. It's the connection that lets this amygdala impulsive uh, fear-based activity get evaluated by the more superior part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. That superhighway is the anterior cingulate. And we can strengthen the functionality of that anterior cingulate and allow us measured response by acting compassionately, by being measured uh, in our responses, by thinking of the long-term consequences of our momentary activities. And that's the keys to the kingdom. That allows us to eat foods that are appropriate. It allows us to stick with plans and, and lifestyle choices that are really going to pave the way for health as opposed to giving in. It allows us to care for each other. It allows us to reconnect to our neighbors, to our communities, to uh, other countries and reconnect to the planet. And we desperately need that. The ultimate positive feedback loop. That's right. And it's interesting that when you look at individuals who are less connected to prefrontal cortex, and you can measure that on uh, sophisticated brain brain scans, they're less concerned with respect to the
0: global environment. Grain Brain's back out. Everyone should pick it back up. It's re-released. There's some great new information there. Uh, what else is next for you? I hear, I hear there's a book in the works with your son, Austin, one of our favorite My Buddy Green early contributors. <laughs> there you go, in the,
1: in the, in the day. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, we're writing a book uh, called Brainwash. And I am uh, very, very excited about what that book is going to do. I mean, it's focused on what we just talked about, on this notion of reconnection and reconnecting to the wonderful signals of our genome, this beautiful legacy that we have from all who have come before, reconnecting to the messages of our microbiome, all that those hundred trillion organisms that want you to be healthy, uh, reconnecting to the prefrontal cortex like we just talked about, reconnecting to our neighbors and our communities, and reconnecting to the notion that we're grateful for, for this planet and we're going to do everything we can Uh, to keep this planet healthy so it's about that and it it clearly uh, focuses on how these connections are being taken from us and why it's in the interest of others to keep us from acting uh, in a way that thinks about the future that we should act impulsively how our social media has hijacked our brains in terms of making instant decisions that are not necessarily salubrious for us in the long run So I think we're all aware that that's happening. We call it out and let people know that, yeah, less screen screen time is, is in your interest. Uh, that more FaceTime, and I mean that in terms of face-to-face with another person, is really what you need. What a great name, FaceTime. When, with all due respect, it's nothing.
0: It's good for grandparents with little kids. Yeah, it is, but you know we call this
1: uh, social media, and it's it, it, there's nothing social about it because every moment that is spent. Uh, on a screen or is spent in so-called social media, you know, there's a saying when you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else. And what are you not doing when you're locked onto your screen uh, for all those hours each day, you're not having a face to face conversation with another individual like you and I are right now. And this is the transcendent moment that we live for.
0: I love it. Dr. David Perlmutter. Thanks so much for being here. Happy new year guys Start it off right.